Thank you for tuning in to The Real Ethics, where we talk all things real related to ethics in reference to professional practices and pop culture. I'm your host, Ronnie Brooks. In this episode, we are discussing the ongoing challenges of our criminal justice system. In most cases, public defenders work to defend the most vulnerable population against a system that uses discriminatory practices in sentencing. It's a fine balance between validating the victim experience and holding the defendants accountable while upholding the rights to due process. This is the ethical dilemma we've been reeling out this episode. Defending the rights of others and the conflict of one's professional and personal ethics. Camera, this can yeah. Admit the facts in our plea bargain. I will not plead guilty. You could get 10 years. Admit to it. You get four. Serve maybe a year. Cameron Poe. You have pleaded guilty to manslaughter in the first degree. With your military skills, you are a deadly weapon and are not subject to the same laws as other people that are provoked because you can respond with deadly force. It is the order of this court that you be remanded to a federal penitentiary where you shall remain incarcerated for a term not less than seven to ten years. Trisha, I think of you always. Your smile, your laugh. I'm not angry. The blame's gotta fall on me. I am, however, torn apart when I think that I won't be there to see our child come into the world cradled in your arms and a first smile. I got your package. Those pink coconut things have made me quite popular. Met a guy just the other day. Baby, uh, he sure does love him. daughter beautiful casey i watch her grow in the pictures you send i showed him the baby oh his reaction was simple he said thank god she looks like a mama i'd have to agree it's funny but here i am in maybe the worst place on earth and yet somehow i feel like the luckiest man alive today at the Little Sunshine Day Care Center. My teacher is Miss Gordon. She is nice. We go to playtime and we all have to hold hands when we walk there. Dear Casey, it was so good to read your letter. I'm glad you like your teacher. We don't exactly have a playtime like you. We do go outside though, but normally we don't hold hands. My wife and I will have our margaritas on the yacht. Esposa y yo vamos a tomar unas margaritas en el yate, por favor. Dear Daddy, today was my first day at first grade. I didn't like it. I don't want to go back tomorrow. This boy, Scotty Dalton, has black teeth and calls me names. Mama says I have to go back. Tell her not to make me. Dear Casey, hopefully this finds you still going to the first grade. School is very important. Your mom is right. Now don't you worry about little Scotty Dalton. Sometimes you meet people like that, but don't let them get you down. Dear Daddy, are you ever coming home? A quick 
that was just played is from the 1997 Simon West directed film, Con Air, starring Nicolas Cage, Dave Chappelle, and John Malkovich. This movie is a fucking riot. It's so off the charts, I cannot express how much I love it, and Dave Chappelle's character is so ridiculous, it is just hysterical. The reason why I chose this film, because in the opening scene, we are shown the four stages of the criminal justice system. The crime, the arrests, the prosecution, and corrections. We're also shown the ethical issues surrounding our judicial system and how the role of the defense attorney is for advocating for the client through the sentencing process and at times getting your client to accept a plea bargain that may or may not be in their best interests. We're also shown the collateral consequences that force ex-offenders back to a life of crime and the effects of incarceration on family members and society, including the social isolation, the loss of life, and the emotional impact on children. And last, we get to see capitalism at its finest and how the purchasing of collateral goods is used as a barter system as a means of survival. So continue listening as we explore and discuss the dilemma of defending the rights of others in a system that perpetrates repeated offenders and is backed by capitalism and the ethical challenges of defense attorneys, professional ethics, and personal moral ethics in providing fair representation for those accused of a crime. As we talk with Los Angeles, California public defense attorney, Emily Milton, in this episode, Ethics in Defending the Public. And let's reel it out. I have a grand lockdown today, so let's all work together and we'll get through this with some alacrity. How many bar attorneys do I have? Gentlemen, you have three bar attorneys here for you today. They've been approved by the Chicago Bar Association to help with the non-indigents. That means you. Congratulations, gentlemen. You may think you're poor, but you are not poor enough to have a public defender. So you have the option of hiring one of these three. Four. Just so you know, you're under no obligation to hire them. Bar attorneys are merely a convenience for you and for the court so we can dispense with your case today. If you want to find your own attorney, you will have to do so tonight after the final hearing, which will, of course, push your hearing to tomorrow. Still, it's up to you. Do you understand? I don't get involved with the fees, so make your arrangements. In the CBS hit series, The Good Wife, Season 7, Episode 1, titled The Bond, we're shown how public defenders get appointed and the challenges of representing one's client when understaffed, underpaid, and overworked. So what is a public defender's role? And what are the ethical challenges that arise when being assigned a case and defending the individuals who've been accused of a crime? Well, to help answer this question, I spoke with Emily Milton, a seven-year trial attorney and deputy public defender at Los Angeles County Public Defender's Office in Eastlake. Ms. Milton represents the good in the court system. Her experience and passion for social change and justice is commendable. And this is what she had to say. What are public defenders and what are your what is your role within the court system? There's a famous case called Gideon v. Wainwright, and that is when the Supreme Court held that the Constitution required that those who could not afford a lawyer had to be appointed a lawyer by the court. So that's sort of what started it all. And since then, now courts appoint public defenders for the indigent. So we are attorneys. Often we are misconstrued as not attorneys. We are attorneys who work for the public defender's office. And we are appointed 
by the court to represent those who cannot afford to hire their own attorney. So we generally get the case at arraignment. So the case has been filed and charges are pending. Beyond the basics, we are really the front line for the indigent. So we represent our clients in all in all ways, in all capacities. So we protect their rights. We protect them from the system that is not designed to protect them. Uh, we protect their due process, their right to a fair trial, the right to investigate their case, to put on a defense. In particular, our office, and I think a lot of other public defender offices, are transitioning to what we call holistic defense. So we don't just go to trial. Not only do we file motions, but Holistic defense involves representing the whole person. So that means mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, housing, and really utilizing all the aspects of our office, which we have paralegals, social workers, uh, resource attorneys for educational rights. We have an appellate division, um, utilizing all those different people and using a lot of different outside resources in the community to really represent our clients. We try and represent everything that is a person and really try and in a system that is not designed to protect our most vulnerable, we try and protect them and show the courts that these are people, these are humans, these are your brothers, these are your sisters, these are your moms, and really humanize our clients and make sure that everyone knows that they are people and they deserve respect. Holistic is like now the catchword within a lot of professions, right? So we have yeah. within the field of psychology, there's this whole person-centered approach. So mm -hmm. person-centered care, person-centered therapy, and you're seeing that more in medicine as well as in, within like treating individuals with dementia, et cetera. And it's interesting that that's how you guys have rebranded. Often we think, oh, if we just fix, you know, the case or dismiss the case or file the motion that fixes things, but that, that doesn't really treat the root problem, which is why we've sort of been trying to change our approach. What are some of the ethical challenges as a public defender, you know, abiding by your professional ethics, but also, you know, coming in conflict with your personal and moral values and belief systems? Yeah, so I definitely get the question, how could you represent a guilty person a lot? Every time I'm at parties, when there was parties, uh, <laughs> I would get asked that question. And I always say, uh, I represent, quote unquote, guilty people the same way I represent, quote unquote, innocent people, which is I zealously defend them equally. And luckily, for me, distinguishing the ethical issues with criminal defense is, is actually not that difficult, because I have a legal duty to my client. And that's really my only ethical duty as a lawyer is to my client. And so that means I can sort of piggyback on that in my mind. And I know, so I, I'm never having an issue with my moral, personal ethics and my legal duty to my client. And maybe that's sort of an easy short answer that it's just not that difficult for me. But I think that in essence, you know, whenever you meet a person who has been charged with a serious or violent crime that to some would be, you know, impossible to reconcile with, you do have to still realize they are a person. And, um, I, you know, one of my favorite quotes is, no person is the worst thing they've ever done. And so people are more than just the one incident and the one charge, the one case. They're complex beings with 
um, negative and positive character traits, just like me or just like anyone else in the court system. So I don't struggle with that dilemma of how to represent people who have been charged with heinous crimes. I definitely lean on my ethical duty to my client that that is my duty is to represent them as zealously as possible and to the certain extent make their wishes and needs heard while also advising them of my opinion on the legal process and what's going on. Being charged with a crime is yeah. one of the most traumatic things a person can experience. Everyone deserves to have a support system and guide them through this process that is scary and traumatizing, even if they're familiar with it in some sense. So I find it to be both my ethical duty and my moral duty personally to lead these people, um, these clients in this journey and help them. I also think it helps that I have family members who've been you know, in and out of the system. And I do recognize that it's literally your mom or your sister or your dad who's in, the, yeah. who's in these jails, these cages. And if you think of it like that, it's much easier to understand that they are just people. And especially when you say like that, like it's in these cages, like it's- It's actual cages. It's, it's actual not, cages. It's full of people. It's dirty. It's gross. There's one toilet. The food is terrible. It's freezing. Yeah. It's traumatizing. The collateral that you purchase for your loved one or your family member for them to survive in an environment or to have those, you know, I'm not going to call them luxuries because it's necessities for some it's people. It's basic necessities. Yeah. 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 Um, of getting a toothbrush, getting an extra pair of shoes. And the system is based off of some form of capitalism where we are paying not only is our taxpayers money is going towards, you know, supporting this system, but also we those people who are victimized from having family members in prison are paying. Yeah, they're paying for them to have these necessities. And I found that to be very interesting as well within the system, within the courts. The industrial prison complex and the money that is spent to penalize and house humans and not rehabilitate them while also making money off them is inhumane and just insane in my opinion. Um, but until the court system and really the, the population starts to really see how it damages our communities to lock people up for years and years and years and not give them any tools or resources to um, rehabilitate themselves or recover and then we and we expect them to and then punish them again if they don't um, until the population really sees that um, it's going to be difficult to change. We, we are very lucky here in L.A. that we have a new district attorney, Gascon, who is um, pretty groundbreaking in his approach in criminal justice and is really changing the game. But it's not like that everywhere. As you know, in the South, as we were talking about previous to this, um, just other counties in LA, in California, even it's night and day. Well, you know, like there's a great documentary for goers called where they show you um, the war on drugs and they have like a little vial of crack compared to like someone having an ounce of Coke. And the person who has the ounce of Coke is like this rich white kid. And he like gets, <laughs> he gets a slap on the wrist because it's his first offense. But this one, like, you know, brown, black or brown person, it's their first offense and they go to prison for 10 years. Um, so maybe yeah. break down some of the ethical challenges with, within sentencing and how you advise your potential clients 
on accepting plea deals and, you know, et cetera, with regard to sentencing. California, at least, there's both indeterminate and determinate sentencing. Um, in the determinate sentencing realm, there's, for misdemeanors, there's a cap, so a maximum amount a person could be detained. Um, it can range from a year to, to less. Um, for felonies, there's what we call the triad. So there's a low term, a midterm, and a high term of prison sentence. And then there's enhancements, allegations that can really change those numbers. There's priors, there's strikes. So it's a very tedious um, project or job to properly advise someone of their maximum sentence. Also, there's collateral consequences like immigration consequences, um, losing housing, um, driver's licenses. A, a lot of different um, certificates can be in, impacted by criminal convictions, jobs. So it's, it's really quite difficult to um, give a simple answer as to how sentencing goes down or what it is. But um, that's also, there's also, that's in comparison to the federal system, which has um, a completely separate type of sentencing scheme um, that is basically, you get to a maximum or you get to a, an amount of time based on these different factors. And that can also lead to some sort of disparate impacts because sometimes you're really stuck at a number in federal sentencing that's very quite, quite difficult to get around. Um, in California, the state sentencing, we have a little bit more flexibility where the judge can um, pick a low term, you know, strike a prior, um, we can negotiate all those types of things. So that's the determinate sentencing in, in California. Then there's indeterminate sentencing in California, which is the life cases. And so some cases, some charges make you eligible for life. So there would be a minimum amount of prison time you would do. And then after that, it is up to the parole board as to whether you get released on parole. The other thing about sentencing is that judges do have a lot of discretion in California to do um, what they want and what they see as fair. But there is a lot of negotiating with the prosecutor, which ends up putting a lot of power in the prosecutor's hands as to sentencing, because there's what the charge is filed as, and then there what be, what would be we negotiate and part of that negotiation would be maybe a lesser charge, but that would include a sentence that the prosecution is uh, amenable to. So it, they would say something like, okay, you've been charged with robbery. We're willing to offer you a grand theft charge, but he has to go to prison for this many years or be detained for this long. So often the prosecutors get a lot of say in sentencing and it leaves a lot to the prosecutors and the judges, which opens the door for um, implicit bias, yeah. explicit bias, um, you know, disparate impacts on different populations. As we know, black and brown people are, are overly represented in the prison system compared to their percentage in the population overall. So we know just statistically that black and brown people are being imprisoned more than white people or people of other races. So in the, in the sense that it is supposed to be both um, indeterminate and determinate sentencing is supposed to give flexibility and, and sort of either end and in different ways, that does cause ethical issues. And as far as who and how each person is impacted within the system. And that's why it's really important for public defenders to be representing people within this system and from beginning to end so that 
our clients have the best chance at getting a fair sentence. I went down several rabbit holes of researching this and trying to understand it. And my mind is like hurting. But what are some of the ethical challenges when people are able to make probation? And how are those collateral consequences coming to effect following serving your time and, you know, representing yourself at a point where you've proven that you're okay to be back and join society? Yeah, probation is its own difficult journey in and of itself. And, you know, at first, I'm sure most people and most clients think, okay, I'd rather take probation than any sort of detention time. And that does make sense because you can you can be at home and in society, but probation is difficult. Um, you know, in, in with felony convictions, they take your DNA. I mean, you're booked. So you have your fingerprints are in the system. Your photo is in the system. Um, you have a probation officer. Sometimes there's GPS monitoring. There's spam alcohol monitoring. Um, there's lots of ways that your freedom is really curtailed. Just being a normal person on probation. They check in with your job, whether you go to school. So there's also the you know, scarlet letter that is follows you just in existing in society while on probation. You have to go check in with your PO or go to a kiosk and check in. Um, you can't really just live your life like a normal person. So probation alone is is difficult just to survive in. And if you violate probation, you face sent, you know, being sentenced to um, custody time. It's it's quite exhausting and traumatizing really to be on probation even. And I think a lot of people maybe think it must not be that bad, but it's it's quite difficult. I mean, even for simple DUIs, you have to breathe into a breathalyzer yeah. in order to drive your car. It's it's really a lot of it's infringement on um, the everyday freedoms of life. But beyond that, sort of going back to the rehabilitation thing, um, I think the overall problem is we, right now we leave law enforcement essentially in charge of rehabilitating people. That's essentially what we're doing by leaving it to corrections officers on the inside or probation department. They are essentially law enforcement. And while they they might bring in outside resources um, to try and help rehabilitate people, because I think we are making a turn towards trying to rehabilitate, um, it's still law enforcement based rehab, quote unquote rehabilitation. And so it would really take a huge structural change to change how we rehabilitate people because it's not just take some AAs and then you're when you're out of prison, it's, you know, you're all better. There's deep rooted issues in racism and poverty and sexism that are not being addressed. And if those are not addressed, then how can we expect people to behave differently. Do you believe it's our moral obligation to restore justice, you know, like have a restorative system in place? Just personally, from my experience in the, in the again, quote unquote, criminal justice system, um, I would love to see more restorative justice um, happening in our, in our system. I think it really is what gives victims closure. It respects um, their experiences. They get to confront and see those who have done wrong to them and they get some peace of mind while also the people accused of, of the crimes have to really be held accountable and be face to face to those that they have done wrong. And I think it can really have magical results and we just don't utilize it enough. We are just such a punitive system and that's our, that's 
our habit is, is punitive, um, not restorative, not rehabilitative, it's punitive. So I think we do have a moral obligation to the victims even of, the, of these incidents of crimes um, to pursue restorative justice and a moral obligation to the defendants in the entire system that they also get a chance at restorative justice because it's truly how we heal um, and really recover and move on from these traumatizing incidents. And often I would bet that if a lot of victims heard my client's stories, they would be heartbroken and they would yeah. have a lot different perspective about, you know, why they took their car or, you know, whatever happened. And I think it really forces people to see the humanity in each other. And I think the criminal justice court system really is designed to take away the humanity from people. You know, victims are all often re referred to as complaining witness or victim. And we sometimes don't know their name. They're not really in court. Wow. You know, there's not a lot of interaction with them. And then defendants are called defendants or numbers or, you know, defendant number one, suspect number one. And on the docket and on a normal court day, it's just another case number. And so the system's really designed to dehumanize people, it, especially when we literally lock them up in cages and take away their freedom. So on all ends, it's really dehumanizing. And I think restorative justice is something we should be pursuing as a society. I think it's tough to get prosecutors and judges um, to like that idea or go along with that idea, but that's because they're based in a system where prosecutors and judges have been functioning in this system for, you know, forever, and they've always had the upper hand and they've always been able to make it work for them. So of course, why would they want it to change? And I think the more we talk about it and the more people really hear, I think the more likely it is that we'll see real actual change and restorative justice across the board. In 2019 and 2020, COVID-19 hit and the civil rights movements like Black Lives Matter helped push reform within this system. As noted by the Sentencing Project, state officials are now enacting legal reforms to reduce prison admissions and re-collaborated punishments to address extreme sentencing practices. For example, Oregon voters approved the decriminalization for possession of drugs like cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine with the passage of one ballot measure. California lawmakers also adopted the Assembly Bill of 1950, which restricts most felony probation terms to two years and most misdemeanor probation terms to one year. And last, we saw several states decriminalize marijuana use. Efforts to address the United States' growth in incarceration brings to light the many unethical discriminatory practices that still exist. Enacting new legislation, voting, and supporting one's community brings focus to these ethical issues. It is up to us as citizens to elect officials who represent social change and value human life over the color of green. And though our criminal justice system has many flaws, it's comforting to know that there are public defenders out there fighting the good fight. Thank you for listening and continue tuning in every fortnight on Thursdays. If you like what you're hearing and would like to continue really not ethical dilemmas with us, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It takes a second, y'all. Just go on iTunes, tap, 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 just like you do on Instagram, and write a few things like it's good or it's not good. We love it no matter what, and we want to hear from you. 
And like I always say, that's a wrap. That's the sound that I need.